0: This fellow, he was a South African bloke, he spent his entire life basically attempting to avenge the wrongs that were committed against him and his family by the British when he was a young man living in South Africa, or or the precursor to to modern South Africa at least. And um, this involved him having all sorts of the most ridiculous adventures and also getting into all sorts of trouble as well. One of the things he seemed very good at was being captured and locked up, but luckily for him. Even if he was good at being captured, he was even better at escaping, as we'll get across throughout the episode. His lifelong quest uh, for revenge saw him become a spy. Uh, he travelled extensively to sabotage the Allied war efforts around the world through both the, both the First and the Second World War. Uh, and he also worked as a reporter, as a writer, as a public speaker. He was involved in the film industry and all of that in addition to starting out his life as a hunter and then a soldier. So... He was an absolutely, absolutely fascinating figure and his story would be, you know, it'd be one that's well worth sharing and, and well worth enjoying were it not uh, for how it ended. Because towards the end of his life, unfortunately, Fritz Duquesne well and truly ended up on the wrong side of history because he established and oversaw a spy for, I'm very sorry to say, the Nazis. Before then, he got up to, he got up to all sorts of mischief, you know the sort of the sort of mischief that makes for a great tale about a lovable scoundrel, but it's just not a tale that has a particularly particularly palatable ending, unfortunately. But we'll tell it all the same. Let's get underway. Have a chat about this bloke. Get across all of his adventures and misadventures. Here we go. We're going all the way back. Here we're going all the way back to 1877. This is the year that young Fritz Duquesne was born as Frederick Joubert Duquesne. He was born into a Boer family with French heritage. Now, the Boers, as you may know, uh, Dutch-speaking inhabitants of Southern Africa. They were the descendants of those that lived there um, at the time when it was ruled by the Dutch East India Company. But when uh, Duquesne was born in 1877, uh, he was born in an area known as the Cape Colony. This was a, an area controlled by the British. Uh, Cape Colony, one of the precursors to modern South Africa. Uh, he was born in a, in a city in, in Cape Colony rather confusingly called East London. Uh, not the eastern part of a city called London, but just an entire city called East London. It's still there today. Um, but he and his family they didn't stay in Cape Colony for very long. Uh, they moved when he was still young uh, to the South African Republic. This is another area that's today part of uh, that's p- part of modern South Africa. Uh, much like the Cape Colony, it was one of the two Boer uh, Boer republics, right? Uh, that in the Orange Free State, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. But uh, this was a yeah a Boer republic. And he and his family, as well as they lived there, and and, uh, and, and that was where he grew up effectively uh, throughout his childhood. Young Duquesne, he followed in his father's footsteps. He was trained as a, as a hunter, even as a, as a small child, and he became particularly fascinated with a panther. He took on the panther as something of a personal symbol. Uh, when he was a spy, he signed a lot of his letters with the panther. He used the black panther as a bit of an icon for, for himself as well, a call sign almost. But uh, quite aside from the hunting, he had... Uh, he had a rather violent, a violent childhood. Uh, when he was twelve, he killed a man. It was the first person he ever killed. When he was twelve years old, uh, someone attacked his mum, and uh, young Duquesne disarmed the bloke and and stabbed him with his own weapon. Uh, and he was later, still at the age of twelve, involved in a shootout with a group of Zulu warriors, and he killed several of them as well. But also saw his uncle aunt and cousin shot to death in front of him. So he exposed some pretty horrific violence even as a young man. But he didn't stick around in Southern Africa. Uh, for too much longer after this, by the age of 13, he'd actually been uh, shipped off. He'd, he was sent away from the South African Republic to Britain, where he attended a school in England. But after this, after his period of uh, of of school in England, once he graduated, things become a little hazy. And, and this is a bit of a recurring theme with this bloke. Um, his entire life, we're not 100% sure of all the details, and with very good reason. This bloke was a bit of a, a bit of a mountebank, bit of a charlatan. He was a spy, obviously, so that necessarily involved a lot of duplicity and lying. But he loved to tell tall stories. He adopted uh, aliases and uh, and false identities, you know, either because he was spying or just because he liked to, as we, as we'll talk about in the episode. Uh, so all the stuff we're saying here, you know, I've, I've done my research as as much as I usually do, and I'll I'll back up most of the stuff that I'm saying here as being at least probably true or at least plausible. But again. Um, it's not guaranteed that the stories from his life are all necessarily 100% historically accurate, but again, done my best, and this is an area as I say where there is a little, it is a little hazy. There are some indications he may have started at Oxford after he graduated. there are some other indications that he may have moved to the continent to study there. But whatever the case, he didn't remain in formal education for very long and there aren't there isn't really any evidence of his attendance at either Oxford University or another university in Europe. And it looks like instead he actually travelled the world, travelled extensively um, here, there and everywhere until 1899. And in 1899, he returned to his homeland because the British had invaded the South African Republic and the Orange Free State, these two uh, Boer Republics that I was talking about in Southern Africa. And the reason they'd done that, of course is that golden diamonds had been discovered in the Boer republics and Britain wanted these riches for themselves and so invaded they dragged Australia into the war as well and so began the second Boer war. Now Duquesne he returned to fight in this conflict on the side of the Boers, obviously and uh, he did well for himself he rose to the rank of captain although he uh, he was shot through the shoulder at one point he was injured uh, he, he was injured at, uh, during during fighting in one battle and at another point he was captured by the British but as I alluded to in the intro, he did manage to escape. This, you know, won't be the last time, let me tell you that. But uh, uh, after he was captured by the British, he escaped, continued fighting, but before very long was captured again. Uh, and this is where things really began to change for the young man. I, I, before that capture, though, there is there's a story I want to tell. I don't know if it's 100% true. Again, this does seem to be more of a bit of a fanciful legend associated with Duquesne, but perhaps it happened. Between uh, these periods, after escaping but before being captured again, right, Duquesne was involved in transporting uh, a huge amount of gold for the South African Republic. During the war, both the Boer the Republics, they did what they could to secure and protect their wealth, right, and so they moved around hundreds of thousands of kilograms of gold, right, while tr- while trying to uh, protect the, you know, the, the wealth they had. And Duquesne, as I say, he was in charge of one of these shipments of gold, and he transported along with a group of other Boers and some, uh, some indigenous attendants, some porters that were helping them. And the story goes that while en route, the Boers got into an argument, right I don't know about what, but they got into an argument that then turned violent and ended up deadly. Only three of the Boers survived, Duquesne amongst and the other two were badly wounded, along with the indigenous porters as well, who, uh, who also made it through the fight. And apparently, Duquesne had the porters take all the gold that he was transporting, hide it in some nearby caves, then burn all the wagons, kill the other two Boers who were wounded, and then ride away on the oxen that were carrying that were pulling the wagons. He gave the the porters all the oxen except one. He himself got on that oxen that he'd taken and he rode off on that. But apparently, hid all of this gold in a cave in Africa somewhere, and people have searched for this hidden gold ever since, and it's never been found, of course. And I mean, look, maybe it never happened. Maybe the gold was you know, just a, a, a tale told to treasure hunters. But if you're ever in South Africa and you fancy a bit of treasure hunting, well, maybe you should check out some caves and see if you can find uh, find the lost gold that uh, Duquesne hid away there. Anyway, Duquesne, as I say, continued to fight for the for the Boers against the British. Uh, was captured again but not by the British this time, this time, but the Portuguese. He was forced to withdraw into Portuguese East Africa during the war, and it was there that he was taken prisoner and ultimately transported to Portugal. He was kept in an internment camp near Lisbon. And if you think things have been a little tame so far, well, get ready, because we're about to kick things into top gear here. I said this bloke lived a life of adventure and misadventure, and here's where it really began. After being transported to uh, to this this internment camp near Lisbon, after being, you know, Captured and locked up, which is going to be a very common occurrence for the rest of the story. Duquesne managed to escape, which is also going to be a very common occurrence for the rest of the story. Each way that he escaped was different from the last, and he got off to a fly with his first escape here, quite incredible. He was locked up in this prison camp, determined to escape, and he did so by, get this, seducing the daughter of one of the guards at the camp... And she helped him break free of this internment camp. And I look—I don't know if she was expecting, you know, a happily ever, ever after with this dashing South African fellow. Uh, she didn't get it. As soon as he was free, he headed to Britain and, believe it or not, joined the British Army. The army that was currently in the process of invading and, and you know, brutally uh, waging war on his homeland. So you might be thinking... What, what the bloody hell is he doing? He's escaped prison. He's gone and joined up with the enemy. Well, he did it for a very good reason. He wanted to infiltrate the enemy army. He wanted to sabotage it from within. So he posed as a recruit wanting to fight for the British in South Africa and was duly de- deployed back to the front. He returned to the, to the Boer Republics, to the, to the Boer War once again in 1901, but this time in, you know, the, the uniform of a British officer but what he discovered there, back in southern Africa, it, it shocked him. He couldn't believe what he saw. I don't know how much you know about the Second Boer War. I don't know how much you know about Lord Kitchener, one of the commanders of the British Army during this war. But I tell you what, he was a nasty piece of work. He pursued, he pursued a policy of scorched earth. Against the Boers, he left merciless and horrific destruction in his wake. He had concentration camps built for Boer prisoners, holding women and children there in horrendous conditions. And tens of thousands of civilians were killed because of Kitchener, and many suffered truly awful fates before they died, such as, I'm sorry to say, Duquesne's family. His family's farm was destroyed and burned, his father died, his mother was imprisoned in a concentration camp, and his sister had been raped before she was killed. And Duquesne, he took this very hard indeed. He never forgave the British for committing these atrocities against his people and his family. And for the rest of his life, he fought against the British in every way that he could. They became his sworn enemy. He essentially devoted the rest of his days to avenging the atrocities that he and his family and the other Boers had suffered during the Second Boer War. And my goodness, what vengeance he sought. He sought starting straight away. He didn't blow his cover at these discoveries. He's in a prime position to, uh, uh, you know, to, to destroy the, the, the British war machine from within. And that's exactly what he tried to do. While posing as a British officer, he went back to Cape Town and he began a plot to sabotage British operations and, more importantly, assassinate Lord Kitchener. He gathered and recruited a group of Boer operatives, around 20 of them in all, and he began to put in motion a plan that would bring down or at least attempt to sabotage the British war effort from within and, of course, kill Lord Kitchen, the bloke who was responsible for all of these atrocities. However, unfortunately for him, they were betrayed. To the British, one of the wives of the Bo- the Boers who was recruited spilled the beans to the British, and the plot came undone. Duquesne was arrested at a dinner party while dressed again as a in, in all the regalia of a British as a, of a British army officer. He was arrested, and he was imprisoned along with his conspirators. And the British sought to end this plot very swiftly indeed by executing the lot of them more or less immediately. However, Duquesne survived. The other conspirators, the other operatives, they were all killed. They were all taken out in front of a firing squad and shot. But Duquesne made a plea bargain, and he had his sentence reduced to life imprisonment. How did he do this? He offered to give up Boer military secrets. The codes and other sorts of classified information that he'd had access to while previously fighting for the Boers, And he also offered to work as a translator for the British as well for the war. And this offer was accepted by the British. They were happy to have him along as an ally. And look, we don't know one way or the other because Duquesne always maintained that he never actually betrayed the Boers. He always claimed that he gave them false codes and faulty translations to further vex and bamboozle the British as they fought the war. And obviously, in doing so, he would have continued his lifelong campaign for revenge. But we don't know one way or the other whether he was as good as his word and and never betrayed the Boers, or decided that discretion was the better part of valor. And he would live to fight another day by cooperating with the British for the time being. And, you know, that's what got him out of the firing squad. So who knows? But whether he's helping the British or not, he's still behind bars. And according to the British, that's where he's going to stay for the rest of his life. But, of course, we know Duquesne, don't we? He was being held in the Castle of Good Hope, a Dutch fortification that had been built a couple of hundred years ago. And while these, while the walls of this castle, they were, they were thick and they were strong, Duquesne's determination was yet stronger. He spent his nights digging away at the mortar around the stones in the wall of his cell with a little spoon. Uh, and he, what he ended up doing was digging himself a tunnel through, through the wall, effectively almost all, almost all the way to freedom. He nearly made it, too. One day, however, unfortunately, he didn't quite make it out through the wall. And one day when the guards came in to check on Duquesne, they come into his cell and they found him lying in his tunnel unconscious because he had been knocked out while digging away stones. One of the stones had come uh, dislodged, uh, bonked him on the noggin and knocked him out cold. So after being identified as a prisoner who, again, was a high escape risk, they decided, the British decided to uh, escalate I guess his imprisonment and instead of leaving him in this castle uh, in South Africa in Southern Africa they shipped him across the Atlantic Ocean transported him away from his native Africa and this time sent him to Bermuda and there on the archipelago of Bermuda the British had a penal colony and this penal colony was known to be Inescapable. It had all sorts of defences to prevent escape. There were human made defences like barbed wire and spotlights and patrol boats, but also more natural defences such as deadly reefs and stormy waters and a whole lot of bloody sharks swimming around as well. But did any of this put Duquesne off? Of course it didn't, mate. Absolutely not. What do you think this is? As soon as he could, he escaped the camp. In which he was imprisoned, he scaled the barbed wire fences. He swam through these shark-infested waters stealthily around all the patrol boats and the searchlights, and he followed the light of a nearby lighthouse to find his way to the Bermudan mainland. And once he was there, he found people who were sympathetic to the Boer cause, who helped him escape, smuggling him on a ship bound for the USA. They didn't send him back to uh, to Southern Africa. The Boer War. Wrapped up, Uh, it had been. I mean, the British won it. The lost. uh, It was. It had been lost by the by the Boers, and so without any real reason to return to Africa, he instead headed to the U.S. In mid 1902, with the Second Boer War lost, Duquesne sailed to Baltimore. He made it to the U.S. safely, uh, and after landing in Baltimore, he traveled to uh, traveled to New York City. With the war lost and his family dead, he 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 felt there was no reason for him return to return to his homeland, and in fact, he never returned back to South Africa for the rest of his life. But he also never gave up on avenging him, avenging himself upon the British, I can tell you this, although opportunities to continue this quest were a little thin on the ground for the next couple of years, and so instead in New York City, Duquesne found work as a journalist and a writer of all things, quite the career change, but he seemed to find a good level of success writing for various newspapers in the early 1900s. He wrote serialised novels, a grand, a tales of grand adventure and you know, uh, uh, stories about big game hunting in, in Africa and all sorts of stuff that amused and delighted people at the time. But he also worked as a foreign correspondent. He travelled the world and worked as an international journalist, uh, travelling extensively to all sorts of different places, writing about his experiences there. And many In many instances, he was actually a, a war correspondent. He travelled to conflicts such as the, uh, the the Russo-Japanese War to write back to American newspapers about what was going on there. And on top of that, he also travelled uh, alongside people. He accompanied people on their expeditions to Africa. While he never returned to South Africa, as I say, he did visit other places such as the Belgian Congo, today's uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo. And with his experience as a hunter and his knowledge of uh, of this part of the world, you know, he he went along with other European expedition parties and uh, and acted as a as a as a correspondent, writing back, you know, writing these stories of uh, of his experiences uh, in Africa back to back to again these Brit- these uh, American newspapers, I should say. But one of the more ridiculous things that emerges with Duquesne towards the end of the first decade of the 1900s, that was more or less how he spent the, I guess, what are we calling it, the noughties? I still, we haven't figured it out, have we? The first decade of the 1900s, he spent that in, you know, fairly unremarkable employment as a journalist, as a writer. But as I say, something very amusing took place in 1910. Now, around this time, the United States was suffering a meat shortage, And the the U.S. government was looking into potential solutions. And hilariously enough, Duquesne was one of the blokes who was called upon to offer his advice as someone from Africa. And Duquesne's suggestion to solve this meat shortage was, this is not a joke, he suggested that hippopotamuses should be imported from Africa to the U.S. uh, to live in the bayous of Louisiana and farmed as a food source. Now, this plan got a lot of support. It got support from the press, from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, even from former President uh, Theodore Roosevelt, right, who had been the President of the United States up until 1909. He, you know, Teddy came out and said, great idea, love a bit of hippo. Apparently, hippo tastes pretty good. I've never had it myself. I don't know if anyone, anyone listening has ever sampled it, but apparently, hippo tastes pretty good. The, uh, the New York Times published an article describing it as Lake Cow Bacon. And Duquesne testified in front of the U.S. Congress as to the feasibility of importing these hippos, farming them in the, in the Louisiana bayous and using them as a food source. Now, as you've probably guessed by the fact that there are very few hippos these days in the Louisiana bayous, the plan did fall through. In spite of the support it received, it did fall through. The idea never made it. Louisiana's bayous are, to this very day, largely hippo-free. But what an interesting result that would have been. Imagine heading down to Mardi Gras in, uh, in in New Orleans and then that weekend <laughs> heading off to see the hippos gambling and prancing about in the bayous. That would have been very, very a very interesting timeline to live in. Anyway, Duquesne's efforts uh, during this time, even if he didn't get hippos into Louisiana, his efforts weren't entirely fruitless because he did strike up something of a friendship with former US President Theodore Roosevelt. So much so, right, believe it or not, that T.R., took Duquesne on as his personal shooting instructor. The two of them went on, uh, on, on hunting trips together. Duquesne wrote about his time with the former president uh, for the newspapers. And ultimately, after over a decade of living in the U.S., Duquesne was made a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1913. Only appropriate, giving, uh, g- given that he was, you know, giving bloody shooting lessons to Theodore Roosevelt, mate. Duquesne never forgot his vow of revenge against the British, however. And as I alluded to before, some opportunities to pursue this revenge emerged again soon enough. And of course, you've already probably guessed the, the vehicle, I guess, that brought these opportunities to Duquesne. It is, of course, the First World War. During the First World War, Duquesne found a way to stand against the British, in this case, by becoming a spy for the Germans. After being recruited in the US by a German-American, Duquesne happily signed up to the German war effort to sabotage the British, but not in a way you might expect. We know this bloke is a hunter, we know that he's a soldier, a killer, but he didn't put any of those talents to use in, you know, contesting the British war effort. Instead, what he did, he was sent to, of all places, Brazil, where he posed as a research scientist with orders to disrupt British shipping that was coming out of South America. And let me tell you this, he did a very bloody good job of it. He disguised time bombs aboard British ships, making them look like cases of scientific samples and other materials. So he'd load up, you know, posing as this research scientist, he would load up big cates and crases on board British ships that he said, well, oh, I need to send this back, whatever else, you know, it's important materials, whatever. But in fact, there was a ticking time bomb inside there, and the ships, that would load these cases up, and then when they were away out at sea, the bombs would count down, they would detonate, and they'd blow these ships to bits. Duquesne is confirmed as having sunk 22 British ships, and it wasn't too long before the British figured out that something was up, because all these ships that are heading out of Brazil keep blowing up in the middle of the ocean, So they investigated the cause of all these explosions, and they discovered that a German operative was at work within Brazil somewhere, sabotaging all their shipping. Eventually, they tracked down one of Duquesne's associates, who, once he was arrested, sang like a canary and gave Duquesne up straight away. But Duquesne evaded capture. He managed to escape across the border to Argentina with the British hot on his heels. They they, they didn't manage to capture him. He was able to escape before they could. And to further throw them off the trail, he had an article published in a newspaper that talked about how he'd been killed in an altercation with indigenous Amazonians in Bolivia. How about that? So he really was trying to cover his trail and throw them off the, uh, off the scent. And after having given, given the British the slip, but obviously being unable to stay in South America where there was a little too much heat for him, Duquesne returned to the United States in mid-1916. And it was here. <laughs> it was here that Duquesne attempted to bring one of his most ridiculous schemes to fruition. You won't believe this. Remember how down in Brazil, Duquesne was loading cases filled with explosives onto ships, claiming that they were filled with research materials and samples whatever else, right? Remember that? Well, he didn't just do that. He also took out... Insurance policies on these cases with an American insurance company, just in case, you know, something happened to the, to, the, to the important and valuable research materials that he was loading up onto these ships, just in case anything happened to them while, while they were at sea, in case, you know, the, the ship blew, was blown to bits and sank, he would be covered by this insurance policy. Well, he then returned to America with ample documentation that all of these insured cases had indeed been consigned to Davy Jones locker when the uh, when the ships that they'd been aboard had sunk uh, due to an explosion and so attempted to claim on these policies that he had taken out he he took out insurance policies on literal bombs that he'd planted on ships and then attempted to get the payout from them from the insurance company now we all know, of course, that the primary goal of an insurance company is to avoid having to pay out in policies that their customers take. And so they investigated these claims very, very thoroughly. And I mean, you know, Duquesne getting away with this would have been incredible. Him taking out insurance on cargo he knew was going to be lost because the cargo was bloody bombs that he himself had said to explode. But it doesn't look like he managed to get any of these policies paid out, unfortunately. And as I say, the the investigator, the insurance investigators, went over the the claims with a fine tooth comb. So it doesn't look like he ever got his payday. But in any case, he didn't actually stick around in the U.S. for too long. Even after this insurance nonsense, he received orders from Germany to travel to Europe, and he did so. Now, I'm not sure about this next bit. I'm really not. There are conflicting reports. This is one of the more famous tales about Duquesne, but whether it's true has never been conclusively proven. He claimed that this was the case till his dying day. But again, we may never know whether it's actually the case. When he headed over to Europe, he went to Scotland. And in Scotland, he began to pose as, of all things, a Russian aristocrat. And while posing as this Russian aristocrat, he boarded a ship, the HMS Hampshire, And the reason he boarded this ship, you'll never guess who else was aboard the Hampshire. It was none other than Lord Kitchener, or Field Marshal Kitchener, as he was during the First World War. The very very same bloke who had been responsible for the scorched-earth tactics in the Second Boer War, Duquesne's most hated foe. And so while posing as this Russian aristocrat, he got on board the very same ship as Kitchener and immediately contacted the Germans to tell them where the ship was, where it was going, and who was aboard it. This very, very important and high-ranking British, uh, British Army officer. Now, again, this might not have happened, but the Germans, after receiving this information, they deployed a submarine to pursue the Hampshire, and with Duquesne being able to communicate the exact location of the ship to this submarine, the submarine then chased it down, fired torpedoes at it, and sank it. But not before Duquesne had escaped aboard a life raft. Only 12 of the 700-plus crew on the ship survived the wreck, and Kitchener was not amongst them. He went down with the Hampshire. He died alongside all those other British sailors. And if Duquesne's story is true, then it was Duquesne himself who wrought Kitchener's death by revealing the ship's location to the Germans. Now, the official cause of the Hampshire's sinking is listed as a sea mine. But again, there are some historians who do give Duquesne's story at least a little bit of credence. So who knows? He could have very well been the bloke who brought about the end of his most hated rival. And even if he's... De- but, but I mean, look, whether he did or didn't kill Kitchener, it didn't reduce his hatred for the British. So there's there's still plenty of his revenge to come. Don't you worry about that. It certainly didn't sate his, his appetite for vengeance. Anyway... Exactly what else he got up to in Europe remains something of a mystery. He kind of disappeared uh, for a while there, uh, which is, I mean to be expected. you know, working as a spy for the Germans, we're not going to know exactly what he did at all time at all times. But eventually he reemerged in the United States once again in 1917. This is just after the US had entered the war, better late than never, I suppose, for them. But he was still a spy, obviously, for the Germans. and as a as a US citizen, he was probably better able to work for them. In the United States, given the the, the content, the, the contacts that he had there. And even if his allegiance was with Germany, he was able to fit in in American society at least. But here he took another very interesting career change while working as a German spy. I mean, you know, not the sort of thing that you can tell people you've been up to while you're catching up at the pub. So he needed a new activity to keep him busy and give a bit of cover. And what he got into, rather than, you know, go back to writing or whatever, he decided to become a public speaker in character. He invented an entirely new character, a new persona altogether, an Australian bloke he posed as, an Australian fellow named Captain Claude Stoughton, complete with an Australian army uniform that he somehow got his hands on from somewhere. And what he did was this, he started cutting about New York theatres, he gave these public lectures, which were basically him just making up stories about the wars that he'd supposedly fought in, and people loved it he brought the money rolling in. they came along in their hundreds to listen to him give these speeches buy the war bonds that he was flogging or donate to the red cross when he campaigned on their behalf and i mean you know the u.s they love this he's flogging war bonds he's he's, he's getting people uh, riled up with these patriotic speeches that are supposedly in favor of the allies but behind under the surface behind the scenes he's still spying for the germans he's moving in these social circles and you know giving the appearance of being on the side of the allies which would have given him very probably access to important people within the uh, the U.S. war machine, but all the same, there's still you know there's still some doubt as to exactly what his spying activities involved during this period, with good reason. You know, spies aren't the sort of people who go about telling you what they're doing, and so we don't know exactly what he got up to, and we do know that he loved the attention that came with these performances. So maybe spying took a backseat for him. Who knows? We're not sure, but it wasn't to last, because in late 1917. Something in his past caught up with him. You might be able to guess what it was. It wasn't a deadly enemy that he'd wronged or someone who had sworn revenge on him or anything like that. No, no. It was the greatest foe of all. It was the insurance company. Remember I said the insurance company that tried to rip off the time bombs in Brazil, the ones who had been thoroughly investigating his claims about the ship that, the ships that had blown up? Well, their investigation had now concluded and they had determined that Duquesne's claims were, after all, a completely fraudulent, and not just completely fraudulent, but also highly suspicious. So suspicious, in fact, that the police were now involved. And so Duquesne, he's in deep put. He was actually arrested on charges of fraud, but it only got worse from there. Because when he was arrested... He was obviously searched to see what he was carrying around with him and what he was carrying around was a file of clippings from newspapers about ships that had been bombed and, most incriminating of all, a letter from a German diplomat saying that Duquesne was one who had rendered considerable service to the German cause. Not the sort of thing a good spy should really be carrying about, but he was caught with it and so he got into a fair bit more trouble than he probably anticipated he would after being arrested for insurance fraud. He really was in the stink. He was imprisoned and when the British found out about his arrest, they requested extradition so he could be prosecuted in Britain for a whole litany of crimes. The British wanted to do him for everything, from murder and arson and espionage to even just a little bit of light treason here. So he is in a lot of trouble. If the British get his hands on him, he is unlikely to see, you know, too many more years. He'd been charged with actual war crimes, so he'd be in a lot of trouble there. So what does he do? Well, he begins to plot his escape. Of course, we know what Duquesne does when he gets locked up. He finds a way to escape. And He certainly did this time, but I tell you what, this one is a very bloody long con indeed. Duquesne faked paralysis. I have no idea how he did this. I don't know how he managed to get it past the doctors, how they didn't see through it, but he successfully tricked the US authorities into believing that he was paralysed. And so because of this, he was committed to a prison hospital in New York where he remained for two years pretending to be paralysed the entire time. But the clock was ticking and the extradition deal was going through. And before, I mean, I was going to say before very long, it was two years. So it was very long, but after two years, it, the, it did look like he was, after all, going to be packed up and sent off to Britain to face the music there. And so after two years of waiting and getting ready, Duquesne finally pulled off his escape. What did he do this time? He disguised himself as a woman, he broke through the bars of his cell, he hopped over the hospital walls and he walked away miraculously paralysis free. Immediately he fled the United States to Mexico, very wisely too you'd think, and from Mexico he headed to Europe and spent the next few years laying low. Between 1919 and 1926, he kept a very low profile. Indeed, in fact, such a low profile that I wasn't able to find too much about what he got up to at all. Presumably, he had contacts and friends in Germany that, uh, that would have looked after him, given his, his service to the, uh, to the German Empire during the war. But he eventually re-emerged in 1926. He decided the heat was off to the point that he could return to the United States, or again, don't forget he is a citizen. So he headed back stateside and began to work as a, you'll never guess, publicity agent for the film industry. Of course he did. I mean, with his skill set, a soldier, a journalist, a writer, a spy and a public speaker. Of course he went into film publicity. What else would he have done? It seemed to go off without a hitch, however, for at least for a little while. he, he For a number of years, he, he worked for FBO pictures and RKO pictures. And then finally, in 1932, he moved back to New York City. Uh, where he began to publish film magazines. The problem was he was relatively well-known in New York City. And even though he set himself up with another alias, he he was going around as a bloke named Major Craven, his alias wasn't as reliable as it would have otherwise been elsewhere. Because as I say, he was a a, a somewhat well-known figure in New York City, thanks to all the kerfuffle from 15 years ago. So eventually, his past caught up with him. He was recognised. He was found out. He was arrested and beaten by the cops. And he was locked up once again. Now, he claimed till he was blue in the face. Case of mistaken identity. I'm not the bloke you're looking for. All the rest of it. But the cops this time, they are one step ahead of him. They found the bloke who had arrested him in 1917. They went all the way back 15 years ago, found the fella who had uh, clapped the cuffs on him all those years ago and asked him to positively identify Duquesne. Of course, he was able to. And so now Duquesne once again... He's in big trouble. The chickens are finally coming home to roost. There's all the stuff from years ago. Plus, there are exciting new charges as well as all the old ones because, you know, he's a jail. He'd broken out of jail. He'd, he'd escaped this prison hospital. And so now he's facing charges for escaping prison as well. So you can imagine the escape that he's going to have to pull off here is going to be truly remarkable because he's facing the insurance fraud charges. He's facing war crime charges as well from the british let's not forget about that and now on top of that he's also been charged with breaking out of prison so how you may be asking does duquesne get himself out of this one well i'll tell you have a listen to this the british were informed that duquesne had been recaptured and the americans asked the british hey we got this bloke you wanted to charge him with war crimes you wanted him extradited in 15 years ago do you still want him and the British said, no, we don't anymore. Thank you very much for asking. That was how Duquesne got out of this situation. The British no longer wanted to prosecute him for all those charges they'd laid against him years ago. And when he was hauled in front of a judge to answer the rest of the, cla- uh, the, the, the charges against him, the judge invoked the statute of limitations and threw out the case. Duquesne walked out of the courtroom a free man, his most daring escape of all, relying on the apathy of the British and the statute of limitations in the US. The British declined the extradition offer. They weren't interested in pursuing the war crime charges anymore. And after the judge threw out the rest of the charges he faced in America, he got away with it all. Every last thing. He had been identified, arrested charged, and nothing had come of it, he escaped in one of the most ridiculous ways you could imagine. But it's here that I'm sorry to say the tale takes a very unfortunate twist. And Duquesne goes from being an amusing scoundrel, the sort of daring rogue that we love to hear stories about and often cheer for, to, again, I'm sorry to say, an actual, literal Nazi. We've had fun talking about Duquesne and his adventures and his hijinks and all the rest of the stuff that he got up to. But here, it's not really right for us to be amused by the rest of his conduct because the people for whom he was spying and, you know, conducting espionage and sabotage missions were, of course, one of the most horrific and horrendous regimes that history has ever seen. Now, Duquesne, of course, had been a spy for the Germans during the First World War. But with the Second World War looming on the horizon with the ascendancy of Hitler and the Nazi Party, Duquesne was once again involved in espionage against the Allies. His hatred of the British drove him into the arms of the Third Reich. He fell in with Nazi sympathisers in the United States and he began to spy on behalf of the Abwehr after making contact with some Nazi military intelligence personnel. Duquesne was charged with establishing a network of Nazi spies within the U.S. This is what the, the Third Reich wanted him to do. They wanted him to plant people in key industries across the U.S. to gather information in aid of the eventual war effort. The, the Second World War hasn't begun, but the, uh, obviously the world is gearing up for it. And in this case, the Nazis wanted to be ready with a, an established spy ring within the United States. And this led to something that you may have heard of before. The Duquesne spying. It is the very same Duquesne. If you've ever heard of the Duquesne spying, this is the Duquesne who set it up. Throughout the back half of the 1930s, Duquesne recruited over 30 spies, all in various jobs, some of them with direct links to Hitler himself, and used them to gather information and planned sabotage in the event that the US ultimately went to war with Germany. For instance, one of the spies worked in aviation and was able to report on the movement of U.S. ships and planes. Another one worked as a delivery man and was able to ferry messages between all the spies by traveling around as a delivery man without raising suspicion. Another one worked in a restaurant and was able to uh, eavesdrop on, on the clientele and gather information based on the conversations there. And all of this information was ferried back to Duquesne, ferried back to the operatives within the spy ring that would then send the information back on to Berlin. But during this time, while this was all happening, Duquesne fe- essentially fell off the face of the earth. Given his history as a spy for Germany, the FBI they tried to keep tabs on him, but they found it very difficult. Duquesne was an experienced spy; he was able to give the FBI the slip at, at basically every turn, and he managed this spying for a number of years, transmitted all sorts of information back to Berlin for the Nazis to use, including after the war began in 1939. However, unbeknownst to him, one of the spies that ended up in the ring was in fact a double agent working for the FBI. While visiting his native Germany, William Zebolt was blackmailed by the Nazis into becoming a spy for them. He was given uh, training by the Nazis to become a spy and given contacts and information as to how he was supposed to proceed once he got back to the United States. And his main contact was, of course, Duquesne. But before left the uh, left Germany for the US, he went to a US embassy he told them what had happened. He said that he was a loyal US citizen and that he wanted to help the FBI in any way that he could. And so, once he was back in the United States, Zabolt was instead, instead of doing spying for Duquesne, he was instead put to work spying on Duquesne. And he eventually helped the FBI spring the trap that broke up the ring and arrested all the participants. It took two years from 1939 through to 1941, but the FBI worked away behind the scenes to identify all of the people in Duquesne's ring, not just Duquesne, I mean, including, but not just Duquesne himself. And Zabolt sold Duquesne up the river immediately. Between these years, between 1939 and 41, the FBI were able to track Duquesne down and they enabled Zabolt to gather all the information that, they, that he could on the ring and solid evidence that Duquesne was doing what, what they knew he was doing. The FBI rented rooms in New York City for Zebolt to use while, quote unquote, working for Duquesne. Zebolt uh, was uh, responsible for transmitting a lot of the information back to Berlin uh, using a radio. And they were able to set up hidden microphones and cameras, one-way glass, all sorts of other things, just like you'd see in a spy movie. You can go online and see this footage. You can go and see footage of Duquesne and the other spies as they met in Zabolt's Ze- rooms, un- unknowing, not knowing that they were being recorded and filmed the entire time by the FBI. Duquesne even suspected that the FBI were perhaps bugging the rooms that they were meeting in. He searched, he thoroughly searched Zabolt's rooms for hidden microphones or anything else, but the FBI, they did a good enough job in hiding them. And so the rooms they became a place where the spies would meet and discuss things freely because they thought it was a you know a safe house a safe place for them to go and talk about all these things. But after this two-year investigation, the FBI they finally swooped in on Duquesne and the 32 other spies that he recruited in June 1941, before the US officially entered the Second World War, and all 33 of these spies were handed prison sentences that. Add up, if you, if you add them all up, over 300 years in total. And to this day, the breaking up of the Duquesne spy ring remains one of the biggest successful counter-espionage operations in history. And in early 1942, Duquesne, who was now 64 years old, was sentenced to 18 years in prison for his involvement, of course, as the ringmaster of this, uh, this group of spies. And unlike all the other times that he'd been locked up He didn't escape this time around. He served 14 years of his sentence in a federal prison in Kansas before finally he was released due to his poor health. And I suppose if you're going to be very generous, that could count as as an escape as he didn't serve his full sentence. But still, I would say spending 14 years in prison only to be released because, you know, you're on death's door is, I don't know if that really counts as an escape. And even if it does, there was one thing that Duquesne, of course, couldn't ultimately escape. And that was his death. Fritz Duquesne died at the age of 78 in a hospital back in New York City where he'd spent so much of his life. And his life was filled with with adventure and misadventure. And were it not for the last very unfortunate chapter that lands him squarely on the wrong side of history, he would have been one of those captivating scoundrels that we all love so much. As a soldier, as a writer, as a spy, and as a film publicist as well, I guess. He travelled the world, always seeking new ways to avenge himself on the hated British, until his quest for revenge led him to support one of the most terrible and horrific regimes in human history. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the tale of Fritz Duquesne, a tale that would otherwise be an incredible story of adventure were it not for the ending, unfortunately. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks very much for, for hanging out with me for another episode of Half House History. Looking forward to doing it all again with you next week. All the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way right now. Let's get to it. net, of course, the contact form there if you want to get in touch. And you can find all episodes of the show, anchor.fm. Thanks, Anchor, for hosting the podcast. Um, if you want to buy half-ass history merch, you can do that. Um, there's the the link via the website halfasshistory.net. You'll be able to follow the link there. Otherwise, head to bit.ly/hahmerch and you can grab all yourself with T Public. Thanks T Public. A um, lot of stuff has been sold. Thank you to everyone who is buying their uh, half-ass history swag, whether it's t-shirts or uh, or mugs or stickers or buttons or whatever it is. I hope uh, hope it's it finds you in good health and I uh, hope it brings you much joy. If you've got other ideas for merch, I might update the merch shop in the coming weeks or months. So if you've got any ideas, let me know. Otherwise, another great way to support the show, of course, is on Patreon, patreon.com slash half history. You can gain access, to early ex- uh, gain access to early access for the show. That I didn't think that sentence through, but you understand what I mean. Um, show notes, uncut episodes, all sorts of stuff there. If you want to get across that, great. Otherwise, that's it. Thanks for hanging out. See you next week for more half History. Oh, contact form, of course. If you've got an idea for, for a topic, please do get in touch. Thanks to everyone who emails in. Sorry, I don't reply to everyone. Um, but uh, I read every single one and I appreciate all the all the excellent suggestions I get. So please keep sending them in, half historynet But that's that for this week of Half House History. Again, thanks for being with me. I'll be back next week. Until then, got a question posed on Reddit. Of course, this one comes to us from Skekekt. It's a spy-related question. Skekekt asks, In the entire history of espionage, they always mention spy rings. Why weren't there also spy necklaces and other types of spy jewelry?